Good to be with you today. Uh, how you doing? Well, if you're, if you're new, man, uh, really, really thank you for being here today. Uh, we are a community of people, right, that really long to do good work in our city. We long to be the church the best way we know how. And so if you're new around here, uh, we are not a perfect group by any stretch, but we really are hungry to see the Lord do some really um, deep things in us, through us, in our city. And so we invite you to just jump in with us. There's really, um, there's really not a lot to it other than to say, I'm in on that. I'm in on following Christ. I'm in on loving our city. And anyway, we're just uh, thrilled you're here. So last week we began our teaching series from the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is a six-chapter letter from Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a big-time city. It had all sorts of things happening. It was the city that had, of course, um, you know, anything that a city would have. It had family life. It had, it, had, it had education. It had business. It had sports, right? Boomer Sooner. It had all sorts of things going on. It had the, also the tough parts of city with, with, with people struggling. And, and, you know, in the middle of this city, though, there's a church that began to grow. The news of Jesus was spreading like fire in this city, and it was actually Paul who wrote this letter, who planted the church in Ephesus, and he plants it, and he leaves the city. He leaves and goes and starts planting other churches around the region, and after he leaves, the, the church starts growing, and as, this is years later, after he's planted a number of churches, he gets to the place where he finds himself arrested, and he's in, he's in Rome, and he's in a prison, and I have a, I have a picture of this uh, prison in Rome. This is the site of the Mamertine prison in Rome. It obviously looks a little different today, but this is where Paul is believed to have been in prison, but also Peter was believed to be in this prison as well at one time. And while, while Paul is in this prison, his disciples and his friends, they come and they see him. They, they bring him food. They, and he has a relationship with his disciples and all these sorts of things while he's in prison. And he actually writes what we know as the prison letters while he's here. At least that's the theory. That's what people believe. That's what historians are leaning towards. This is where the prison letters were written. And he wrote these, and then he had these friends that he gave these letters to, and he sent them out. So you've got to imagine there's a friend that comes, and he sends them to the city of Philippi, and he has a letter for them. And he sends, there's actually four that went out the year 62 AD, one was to Philippi, another one was to the, to, the, to the Colossians. There was one that a guy, a friend named Onesimus, gave to a guy named Philemon, where we got the book Philemon. And then there was a guy named Tychius, who was from the city of Ephesus, who took the letter and took it to the Ephesians. And this was the letter that he gave them. And this is the letter that we're looking at. And these friends of Paul, you got to imagine, they, they put these letters and they travel across sea back to these cities. Now, this is, this is actually extremely important. And, 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 I'm, and I'm guessing you could figure out why, but the Holy Spirit was moving among these churches, right? Among these young churches in these cities. The Holy Spirit was doing some amazing things. But these were all, this was all new. This was a new church. These were new believers in Jesus Christ. They didn't actually have anything in written form that said what it means to believe in Jesus. They didn't have any sort of if you will, centerpiece that said, this is what it means to follow Christ. And, and in these churches, in Ephesus, for example, there were former Jews. And so they believed in Jesus, but what did they, where was their framework? They were like, what well, does this mean we follow the Jewish law? Do we continue to do that except we claim Jesus? So there was a little bit of like, we know that Jesus changes everything, but they didn't have like a, they didn't have an anchor point, right? 
And then there's also these new believers that were known as Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And they formerly, before they believed in Jesus, probably believed in Greek gods or Roman gods. Or maybe they believed in nothing. And so you have all these people in these new churches, and they're like, we know we believe in Jesus. We know that there's some things that are being said about how we should, how we should really follow the Lord. But these letters were critical because they came to a group of people who were looking to be led and guided in what it means to follow Christ. Because this was a new thing. It was a new way of living. And so these letters became the gift that the Holy Spirit gave these churches through Paul, but also through these other apostles that, that wrote the rest of the New Testament, right? So you got to imagine, they didn't have this, and then all of a sudden they're getting these letters from these inspired uh, words by the Holy Spirit through his apostles to the churches about how and what it means to believe in Christ. So they knew, I'm a new creation in Christ, but what does that mean? So the book of Ephesians, Paul does something really, really, really good. The first half of the book, the first three chapters, are all about like doctrine and the theology of God and what we should think of and what does the church really need to do to, to, to live well and to think well, if you will, uh, about, what, about who God is, so ourselves and our heavenly calling as a church. So if you want to think about it this way, the first half of the book is about theology, doctrine. And the second half of the book is about what it means to practically live as followers of Christ every day. What does it mean? About the, how, does it, how do we be the church, if you will, as we live on earth? So in chapter 4, he gives this amazing little ditty about what it means um, to be the church the best way we know how, essentially. He gives this little piece about what it means to bring life to a city. It's actually quite brilliant. It's perfect. It's, I love it. It's incredibly practical. It provides quite the journey for you and me about not only how to think about God, but how to live for God. Are you with me? So you got to imagine this guy, his name is Tychius. He's given this letter by Paul. He rolls up the letter, sticks it in his satchel, right? And he heads back to Ephesus. And he gives this letter from the Apostle Paul, the guy who planted the church, the guy who's been doing all this ministry. See, if the Roman guard would have knew what these letters would become, don't you think they would have seized them and destroyed them? But they didn't know. They didn't. Paul was, at the time, this little unknown like follower of the way. They didn't, he seemed like more trouble than he was worth. So these letters go out, and they have no idea how it's going to revolutionize the world. And they get this letter in Ephesus, and it is like exactly what they were waiting on. They needed leadership and guidance. They needed the word from the Lord to know what it means, how to think about God and Christ, and how to live for him. And so this is huge. So let's get to it, shall we? Ephesians. Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14 today. Here we go. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So let's just kind of pause for a second. So the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Um, the word blessed has become kind of an odd word in our culture. Uh, in many ways, it's been stripped of its meaning, if, if you know what I mean. And it's, it's getting even used often as like a joke. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? Several years ago, I had a friend who was a motivational speaker, and he spoke at like school assemblies and stuff, and he had a shirt that he sold at his merch table. You know what I'm talking about? It looked like this. It was this. It was bless your heart. You guys, some of you already know the joke, right? And he would tell this story about how his grandma, every time he did anything 
stupid or dumb would go, oh, bless your heart. And so he sold this whole thing on blessing your heart. And I get that look most Sundays from my family. <laughs> bless your heart. What are you doing? Here's another t-shirt representing our cultural meaning of the word blessed, right? Hashtag blessed. I was reading a New York Times article about how this whole hashtag blessed on social media, if you're into that sort of thing, has become the most ridiculous version of humble bragging and talking about how awesome you are. You know what I mean? So you'd be like, I got new shoes, hashtag blessed. <laughs> was that Trader Joe's, strawberries half off, hashtag blessed, <laughs> right? Front row at Taylor Swift, hashtag blessed, hashtag look what you made me do. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, Christy. <laughs> the other day, Christy got. She ordered some groceries through Walmart online pickup. You know, if you guys haven't done that, it's the greatest thing ever. Like the online thing, and she ordered these groceries, and they, and they, we got them, and there was so many groceries. They got it completely wrong. They were like missing, and then we had stuff we didn't order, and and they messed the thing up so badly they just refunded our whole order, and we got to keep the food, which I of course said hashtag blessed. Because any food, even from Walmarts, is good, right? Yes, I added the S on purpose. So let's talk about this term blessed, all right? There are many versions of the word blessed in Scripture, but in this particular instance, blessed means to be made holy or supremely favored. It means to be supremely favored or made holy. So to be blessed is to be supremely favored by God. It's to be made holy. And how do you become holy? Well, the only way you become holy is through the blood of Jesus, who washes us clean. It's so to be blessed means to be renewed, to be reconciled to God, to be made holy again. That's the only way you're blessed, right? It does not mean, you know, that we just watched an episode of This Is Us and we're feeling hashtag blessed. It means something much deeper. The ver verse 4, Paul begins to outline what these spiritual blessings are. Now, remember I said earlier that Paul is writing to these followers of Jesus. They're new in Christ. They want to know what it means to be the church. They want to know what it means to follow Christ. What distinguishes them as, as, as different from what Jews are, from what Gentiles are. And so here we go. We're going to get into, I'm going to, I'm going to read verse 3 again and verse 4. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So we need to know this first. The original Greek when Paul wrote this was actually verses 3 through 14, which we're about to walk through all of them. It was actually one really, really long run-on sentence. It was just this 202-word sentence. It was this long thought that Paul just wrote out. The translators have since made it into 13 sentences so we can more easily read it, but I think that actually strips the intentionality that Paul was writing with. Because you got to read it this way. He's like, it was if Paul said, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in every way. Even before he made the world, he blessed us. And then he goes on this really long rant of about all the ways God has blessed us. Right? This is exciting. This is hashtag blessed. So here's what I want to do today. I want to help us clearly see all the spiritual blessings that Paul outlines that God has given us. So let's look at verse four specifically. Even before he made the world, my friends, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eye. What is without fault? Holy, blessed. So for us to be blessed, right? What's the first things he says our blessings are is that he loves us 
and that he chose us. So even before the world, God loved you. That's a mind-blowing concept, isn't it? God loved you. And it's not just any type of love. It's the type of love that only the Heavenly Father can give. It's the kind of love that Jesus described when he told the story of the prodigal son. And there's this father, right, who had given his wayward son all of his inheritance. And his son went off and he squandered at the Lucky Star Casino. That guy, you know what I'm talking about? When he came back, what did the father do? He saw him and he ran to him and he hugged him and he kissed him. He threw a party for him and he put him back in his rightful place of son, which was not done in, in any other realm of society and culture at that time for, for a father to be that loving. And this is the kind of love that the father has for us, every one of us, that he loves us. No matter what we do, no matter how dumb we are, no matter how far we stray, he still loves us. This is the kind of love he has for everyone. It knows no bounds. Then he says that he chose us. Other versions of the Bible, just so you know, if, you may, if you're looking at one, the word is predestined us. Perhaps I should skirt around this one, right? Because this is a theological landmine. Are you with me? Predestination is this complicated word. Lots of debate has occurred, essentially asking the question, does God choose some and not others? Does he love that person and not the other? Does he predetermine, predestine, elect some to know him and not others? We quickly, quickly will get into discussion if we go down this too far into Calvinism or Reformed theology, if you know much about it, versus Arminian Wesleyan theology, right? And there's this whole debate in the church. And some of you know a lot about that debate. Some of you know nothing about it. You're blessed. Before we go down some leap, long, deep hallway of opening a lot of doors and getting lost, perhaps I can say it this way, okay? I don't think this verse is saying anything about some are loved by God and some aren't. Couldn't say that. This isn't some invisible discrimination of God that some have made it into be. This is not like some spiritual game of duck, duck, goose where the geese get in and the ducks are left out. Some may see it that way, but let me, if you really look at what the heart of God is, 2 Peter 3, 9 says he wants all to come into repentance. That's his heart. So this verse is actually a really beautiful doctrine. The Father saying, I want you. I choose you. Come to me. This is the beautiful doctrine that's being said here. That I want you. Before I made the world, I loved you and I chose you. The choosing isn't done by you, by the way. That's where, that's where we kind of get confused. The choosing is done by God, meaning he chose you. So a lot of people say, hey, you know, have you found God? Well, you didn't get, you, he wasn't lost. You didn't find him. He found you, and he chose you. This is incredible. We experience a lot of rejection in life, don't we? Rewind, right? Rejected by the team, rejected at the dance, rejected for the job, rejected for the date, rejected for marriage, rejected, and so many different things for college, by even by our families, right? And here we are, and this is an invitation by God to say, you're invited to the team, you're invited to the dance, you are invited to the job that I have for you. So every time the world says, I don't want you, God is saying, I want you, I choose you, I love you. Every time the world rejects you, you got to remember, God chooses you. And some of you need to hear that today because you have experienced some deep rejection in life. And I want you to know, God will never reject you. I love it. 
Verse 5, God decided in advance, oh, here we go, some more blessings, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and he gave him great pleasure. So how else has God blessed us? Well, right here it says that he decided to adopt us into his own family. How many of you guys have seen the movie Annie? Remember Annie, the classic Annie? Nobody. I saw it. Let me tell you about this movie you guys have never seen. Um, well, Annie's this perfect example of adoption, right? Here's this kid who had nothing going for her. She was in the, she had all, everything going against her. She was living in poverty. And then, and then Daddy Warbucks comes along and plucks her out of her poverty and sticks her where? In the palace. In that cool picture, right? And then Jesus, in the time of Jesus, right before Jesus, the, there, was a, there was a Roman emperor. His name was Julius Caesar. You guys have heard of him? And Julius Caesar adopted a son. Dr. J adopted a guy named Octavian. <laughs> that was good. Octavian. And Octavian was, was adopted in one act. Octavian becomes his son through adoption. Later, Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus, the most well-known Roman emperor of all time in history. And Caesar Augustus rules the Roman Empire. Now you can think about this. In one act of adoption, the whole Roman kingdom was his. What? That's crazy, right? Because he became the son of Julius Caesar. And here we are. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about adoption of you into the family of God. You're into the family of God. You are now children of God. Therefore, you, are the, you will receive, which we'll talk about in a minute, the inheritance of God. This is good. Oh, my goodness. We're in his family. He has chosen us. He loves us. What does it say? You know, this is an explicitly Christian doctrine, this idea of family and fatherhood. There's, there's no other religion that talks about God the Father. Even the Jewish tradition doesn't, they don't really like the family fatherhood language. It barely talks about God being father in the Old Testament. It's 64 times in the New Testament that God is called the father. And so it's an explicitly Christian understanding that we are part of a family, that we are God's children and that we're cohorts. And so they actually reject that notion. And this is the only doctrine that says something different. What does it say in Romans 8? It says, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children. So we call him Abba, Father. God loves us. He's chosen us. He wants us. You're beginning to see, we've been in this family, how we are blessed, right? Verse 6, so we praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured out on us, who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace. You'll see that word rich a lot in the book of Ephesians. We'll talk about that in another week. But his, his kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. There's a lot of blessings in here, by the way. With the blood of his son and forgave our sins, he has showered us with his kindness. Have you ever been showered with kindness? If, you've ever been, if, you've, if, you've, if you're married, you might have had a, a wedding shower where they showered you with like Target and Bed Bath & Beyond cards. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of the same thing, only better. So he showers us with his kindness. It says that God poured out his grace, his glorious grace on us. And I imagine this like pouring out of his grace. It's like oil over our skin. It just covers us, right? He's poured out his glorious grace. And then it says that he purchased freedom with the blood of Jesus. 
Ever wonder where the patriotic, where the patriotic theme of freedom comes from that we talk so much about, right? We have all these freedom, is it free? How many in our country experience all these freedoms? And a lot of people say a lot of people paid a high cost for that freedom, right? Where do those themes come from? Where does this understanding that freedom comes through sacrifice, where does it even come from? Jesus is the ultimate picture of freedom coming through sacrifice. This is where it's from. That freedom is achieved through a death, through a sacrifice. Jesus freed us from our slavery. We were slaves to sin, slaves to hell. And he says that he, through the blood of Jesus, we are set free of our sin and we are given an inheritance in heaven. And it says, is this that's not enough? He says, and he forgave our sins. God forgave us. All, all of us need forgiveness, don't we? We've all sinned against God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And his kindness and in his grace that's been poured over us, it comes out in this peace, in this picture of absolute forgiveness for you and me. This does not make sense. This is why we're blessed. This is only by his grace. Because he loves us and he chooses us. Okay, we're about 83 and a half words into a 202 word sentence. <laughs> we got to keep going. Verse 8. Along with all wisdom and understanding, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. There's a lot in that, isn't there? All wisdom and God has revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ? What is he talking about? Which is to fulfill his own good plan. Christ is to fulfill his own good plan. God has a plan. And this is his plan, in case you're wondering. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. So if you're ever wondering where this whole thing is headed, it's headed towards Jesus being in charge. It's headed toward the authority of Christ sitting on his throne, and we're all worshiping him. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where this is headed. That's God's plan. That's good stuff. So God has given us all, emphasis on the all, A-L-L, all wisdom and understanding. Understanding about what? About his mysterious will regarding Christ to fulfill his good plan. Once you receive Jesus, you have this understanding about what this world is really about, what Christ's purpose is, what's going on. And God has a plan. Since we're talking about God's plans, you might, if you've been in church, you might uh, guess that I'm going to mention Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Great verse for a pillow. Great verse for a wall hanging in your house, right? We love this verse. It makes us feel good. God cares about us. We get all that. But for many of us, this verse is sort of one of those, sort of those tension points in our life because it's like, yeah, he has a plan for us, but I don't know what it is. I don't feel it. I, I, Life is confusing to me. It's a mess. God has a plan for me, but why does all this keep happening where I feel like I'm just, you know, spinning my wheels, throwing up a bunch of mud, but getting nowhere in my life? So this verse can be like one of those, like, yeah, God has a plan. Yeah, whatever. Maybe for them, but not for me. So what happens is we're living life confused by God's plans. And here's why I think we're confused. You've got to catch this. I'm, I'm throwing a lot in here. We're, we're kind of in the deep end of the pool, if you haven't been able to tell, but everybody, everybody has floaties, so don't worry. You're not going to drown. But there's a lot happening because Paul is doing what? He's teaching us an understanding of who it is and what it means to believe in Christ. He's teaching us some doctrine and some theology about God, right? This is what Paul's doing. So 
catch this about this whole plans thing. Most of us are confused about God's plans for us because we're really focused on the plans that the world expects us to create. So God's plans are most exclusively about who you are. That's what his plans are usually about. Not necessarily about what you do, but we're focused on what we do, right? So once, but you catch this, but once you discover who you are, once you discover who you are and you live from that sense of identity of who I am in Christ, who I'm supposed to become, once you live from that place, it dictates all the things you do because they all live in submission to that. So the things you do become dictated and led by who you are, which is God's plan and for you. He wants to shape who you are becoming so you can understand who you're supposed to go and be and what you're supposed to do in this world. Are you with me? So what happens is we're living life blinded by the chaos of the world around us and the busyness of our lives, and it often feels like a big mess. And this, this whole idea of God's plan, and this, this, it gives me a, kind of a picture of a tapestry. You guys know how a tapestry works, right? We have an image here. It, the back side of the tapestry is actually looks a lot like this. It's just a big mess of yarn and string, and you can't really tell what's going on, but the front side is this picture, right? And most of us, when it comes to plans, I say most of us, at least at some point in our life, We've been consumed with the mess. And all we see is the mess, and we're frustrated, and we don't get it, and we're not understanding what God is actually weaving together, and that he's weaving together a plan for us that we don't even comprehend. But because we're focused on the plans that the world wants us to do, we're looking at the wrong side of the picture, and we're seeing the mess instead of the plan. So God has a plan for you. Verse 11. That was kind of a message in and of itself. Verse 11, furthermore, because Paul's like, in case you thought it was done, I'm not. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. So there we are again with the plan. He's choosing us again. He's repeating some things, right? But here's where we get into this, this idea of inheritance, which is a, it's a continuation from this adoption. We have received an inheritance from God. That's what you should be tweeting, by the way. I've received an inheritance from God, period, hashtag blessed. Nobody would get it, but it's true. (laughs) So we should be celebrating, right? We should be celebrating and praising God for this. We really should. Earlier in verse 4, it says that we are in Christ. In Colossians, it said we are hidden in Christ. Since we are in Christ, we are actually given the right to be co-heirs with him. We're in him. So when God sees us, he actually sees Christ. Therefore, we're his children. Therefore, we are co-heirs with Christ because we are in Jesus. So we're co-heirs, meaning we're going to receive. Remember the prodigal son? I mentioned that one, the prodigal son. What does he say to the older son at the end? He says, everything I have is yours. What? So the father is telling his kids, everything I have. What what, What does God have? Everything, right? And so everything I have is yours. Now, do I understand that fully? No. Do I have to understand that fully? No. But what I do understand is that that is only possible through Jesus Christ. That is only made possible by Christ. It's through Jesus that we get to even say that we're co-heirs. Jesus is the culmination and the centerpiece of his plan. And it brings any of us that wanted it into unity and into the family of God through Christ. 
So he wants to give us everything. That's his heart. That's why Jesus has come. There's a reason that this is called good news. This is really good, right? Jesus is so, so good. I'm actually going to read this kind of a few verses here. We're getting closer to the end here, but verse 12. I'm going to read through most of verse 14. God's purpose, here we are with this plan again, was that we Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. So Paul is acknowledging what? What I started in the beginning with, that there are Jews in this church and there are Gentiles in this church, and they all have probably confused ideas about what it means to follow Jesus. And here's Paul just acknowledging, hey, remember, some of you have a Jewish background, some of you have a Gentile background. What do churches have today? They have people with all sorts of religious backgrounds, all sorts of differing opinions about who God is. Even if they came up in the church, right, in a Christian understanding, there's going to be some really strange, different views going on. And when Paul is saying, hey, we're going to talk about this whole idea that some of you believe this, some of you believe that, but you're believing this, that the good news is that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, so he's reuniting them around what? Jesus. He identified you as his own. Here we go once again. He chose you. He adopts you. By giving you, this is like my favorite part, by giving you the Holy Spirit. What? Whom he promised long ago. And then listen to this statement. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance. Once again, there's the inheritance piece that he promised and that he has purchased. Once again, the purchase piece us to be his own people. So he's getting close to wrapping up this 202-word sentence by reminding everyone that God is with them. Notice something here. He talked about God the Father, didn't he, at the very beginning? Adoption, all these sorts of things. God the Father. And then he's talked a lot about Jesus the Son. And now he's like completing his Trinitarian doctrine of God to these Ephesians by introducing them to the Spirit. And so he's like, he's just laying it all out, making sure they understand that when they relate to God, they relate to him as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So good. He says, you're blessed because I gave you the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, in fact, the Holy Spirit will be your guarantee that all of this is real. Because the Spirit is his presence with us. When his, when his presence is with us, we feel him, don't we? We know that there's something going on that's beyond just the physical realm, but there's something spiritual to this whole world that everything actually has this spiritual component that comes alive, and, it comes, and it, you can't explain it other than God. This is his guarantee. And this is where God is trying to un- help us understand there are going to be ways in which his presence is with you in undeniable ways, and this is how you know he's real. So follow me here. For anyone who says that they're a Christian, so if you say you're a Christian, listen. If you say you're not a Christian, listen. For anyone who says they're a Christian, there should have been a moment where God's spirit was with you, leading you to submit to him. There should be a moment where God's presence was made so real to you 
that it's undeniable that God is real. And that there's no shadow of a doubt in your mind, not only about God's reality to you, but that you've made your life his. So I wanna ask a really clear question today. Have you had a moment like that? Where God's presence was made real to you and you surrender your life to him? You made him Lord of your life? I'm not asking if you believe in God. Listen, belief is really important, but it is not what makes you a follower of Jesus. We all, we, we need to believe, we need to have the belief and a faith in God, knowing that he's real, but there's, it's, it goes way beyond belief. And I think we know that. Is there a moment when you've absolutely turned your life over to him? A moment when you said, you know what? No matter what else happens in this world, there's one thing I can count on and it's Jesus. A curious learner doesn't make you a disciple. Do you understand that? Belief is important. A true follower of Jesus has experienced the presence of God and a draw of his spirit. Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever felt the presence of God in a way that you've allowed him to come in? So I'm not asking you if you believe. I hope you believe, but I'm asking about more than belief. I'm not asking if you went to church, if you've been in church most of your life. I'm not asking if you grew up in church and know the Bible search. I'm not asking if you had a baptism experience, because here's the deal. Baptism is a really important thing, and it's a great moment in which you symbolize your faith in Jesus by being raised back to life, right? The buried in baptism, raised back. That's a symbolic moment that means a lot. But here's the thing that happens with baptism. So many people have been confused about it because they were baptized as kids, or maybe there's a tradition in which they were baptized in, and they, they point to that moment as their moment of salvation. But I'm telling you, that's not, a, that's not a salvation moment. That's a that's a moment that happens after you've given your life to Jesus where the Spirit has drawn you to him and you said, I'm giving my life to Jesus no matter what else happens in this life. My life is his. And you've confessed. When, you, when have you confessed with your lips that Jesus is Lord? When have you asked for forgiveness in your heart for your sins? And when have you said, Lord, I'm committing my life from this day forward for you? When has that moment happened where the Spirit drew you to have to say those words that, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need you. I'm confessing you as Lord over all things. I'm no longer Lord. I'm submitting my life to you that the Spirit has drawn you to that moment. If it's been an intellectual thing where you've just said, yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. No, 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 no. That's, that, that, we're not asking you to believe. We're asking you to believe and confess. We're asking you to believe, confess, and repent of your ways so you can now live for Jesus in a new way of living. This is what Paul's talking about. Do you understand that? I think so many of you in here, you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've done that. That's fantastic, but there's so many people I have a burden for that I'm like, they're living their life, they're calling it faith, they're calling it salvation, but I think in the end, they had a moment when they were a kid in which they went through some class or they, or they, or they, or they did a baptism, but they never have confessed Jesus as Lord of their life. The guarantee, right? When the Holy Spirit has come over you and you decided Jesus is King of your Lord of your life, that's the guarantee. That's what gives you confidence in your salvation. You can have confidence in your inheritance. You can have confidence in your eternity to God. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit on your life. So the biblical claim of the God, listen to this. The biblical claim of the gospel is that we live from blessing and not for blessing. I'll let that sink in because this is big that we live from blessing and not for it. We don't try and earn it. Instead, 
We live from the blessing because we are, when we are in Christ, we are blessed. And we live from that. So let me show you what Paul did here. And I gave you this card with really small font, but don't worry about it. It's on the screen too. I want you to see what Paul did here in these, few, in these 202 words, right? And we're not actually done with all those words yet. I want you to listen to this and receive them. Because some of us need to hear this, all right? Some of you need to hear this and you need to figure out what you need to hear today. God loves you. And here's what I want you to do as I go through this. I want you to start thinking about what's the one you need to hear? What's the one you need to circle on that card? What's the one you need to star? God loves you. Do you need to be reminded of his love for you? God chose you. I mean, have you faced rejection in your life? And knowing that God chooses you and wants you is like revolutionary. God adopts you into his family. He takes you and me and every one of us out of poverty and he puts us into the palace. That's what he does. God pours out his glorious grace on you. It's like oil pouring over your skin, covering every inch of you. That's his grace. He has purchased your freedom. Do you understand that you, you were dead without him? Like you need someone to come into your life and to actually be the gap that you cannot fill. And this is what he does. He purchases our freedom and he forgives us. God forgives you. Do you need his forgiveness today? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God showers you with this kindness. The world is not kind. And I'm telling you, so many people have blamed the unkindness of the world on God and said, why is God doing this? It's not God doing it, it's the world doing it. It's the world that's unkind and the only thing that's kind and the only thing that's the hope to all the unkindness is God because he will shower his kindness on you if you let him. If you don't wallow in the world, but you pursue the king. A lot of us, we're messed up about what we're pursuing. And if you pursue the king, guess what? You're gonna start seeing this kindness to start being poured out on you, showering you. God gives you all wisdom and understanding of his plan. Some of you need to hear that today because you are like, I do not know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And God's saying, I have a plan. If you'll just trust me, if you'll turn to me, if you quit pursuing those other plans and just start trusting the things I've already said that are in my word. You start becoming the person I've called you to be, trust me, your life's gonna be full. God is giving you an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything I have is yours. God is with you. He gave you the spirit, right? This is your guarantee. If you need to be anything, the most real thing in my life, the most real thing in my life is the things that God has done. The things that I know his presence with me. There's no other way to explain it because I could have never done it in the flesh. It's only by the power of the spirit that I've seen things come into reality. That is the most real things. That's the guarantee. And then what does this all mean? It means that God has blessed you. Today, you may need to hear more than one of these. I'm sure we could circle all of them, but I believe there are seasons in life when we, we see something that God has done or that he's doing and and we say, I need that. And here's, here's the most important thought you can ever have. You guys ready for this? This is big. 
The most important thought you can ever have is the thoughts you have about God. That's the most important thought you can ever have. So whatever brilliant thing you have going on in life, let me tell you the most important thoughts you can ever have are the thoughts you have about God. And if whenever you think about God, you think about things other than this, that God loves me, God chose me, God forgives me, God purchased me with this freedom, God gave me a spirit, God gave me an inheritance. If you're thinking about other things that are like, oh, God's in heaven and he's a judge and he's this and he's that and he's, and he's angry with it. No, 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 no. That's not the most, that's not the truth. The truth is the most important thing, the most important thoughts you can ever have about God are understanding who God is and what he has promised us and how he has blessed us. So everybody bow their heads. We're about to finish. I want to help us all respond to this today. And to respond, I would just say, really simply, everybody in the room, you just looked at this card, you just looked at this screen. If I just mentioned there's probably one thing or more than one thing. If there's something that you're like, I needed that today. I needed to know that today. I need to be reminded. I need to hear it for the first time. If you're in that boat where you're like, I needed to circle one or I did circle one, would you respond to the Lord just by lifting your hand and saying, I needed that today. Just lift your hand. Come on, everyone around the room that needed that today. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And one clear question I have today I said a few moments ago that you can have confidence in your relationship with Jesus. It's not just about believing. It's not just about being a good person or going to church or, or getting baptized. It's about a moment of God's spirit drawing you and you surrendering to him. When I was a teenager, I was in, I was in a service a lot like this and God's spirit moved in my heart and I confessed Jesus as Lord. And I've had confidence ever since. Why? Because the Spirit drew me and I confessed him as Lord. So if you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, I want to help you do it. I, uh, we don't do this every week, but I believe today we have to. Today can be the day of your salvation. The, world says all you or the Word says all you have to do is believe, but then also confess with your lips that he is Lord and you will be saved. So if you want to experience salvation, uh, I just want to lead you in a prayer. And, and, and here's what I want to do is, if today, just like I did a moment ago, I had people raise their hand. If today you're like, I want to receive Jesus. I want this to be it. I feel the Spirit drawing me. And, and I'm, I'm assuming the Spirit is drawing people today to him. And, and you can surrender to that calling and to that drawing today by confessing and repenting. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you to be really courageous and just lift your hand as I count to three. I'm just going to count to three and just lift your hand if you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus today. Just as I say, one, two, three, just lift your hand wherever you're at. You want to give your life to Christ today. Is there anybody? Yeah, I see it. That's awesome. So good. Anybody else? Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to Pray this prayer in church. I'm going to invite you to pray it with us, those that are praying it for the first time. It's not, a, it's not a prayer that's in the Bible. It's just a prayer of confession. But just repeat this prayer. I'm going to lead you through it. Say, Lord, today I confess you are Lord. I'm going to say that one more time. I want us to just repeat this prayer. Lord, today I confess you as Lord. I want to receive your gift of salvation. I ask for forgiveness of my sins. I commit to follow you. Thank you for loving me and for saving me. 
anybody can look here. If you just prayed that for the first time, that is amazing. I want to encourage you in this moment when we sing, come talk to one of us, talk to me, Micah, someone on the side, our prayer team, at some point before you leave today. But we didn't finish the 202-word sentence. There's 10 words left. <laughs> You're like, get off the stage, Tim. No, these are really good words. So I want to go back to the scripture slide and go to the last 10 words. It says, he did this so we would praise and glorify him. Come on. He did all this so that we would know he is God. He did all this so we would know he is God. We would know that he's for us and not against us and that we can trust in him. So there should be some place when we understand that we are blessed, that we, there's no other place we'd rather be than praising and giving glory, glory to him, right? That when we understand the blessings that have been poured out on us, there's no other place we'd rather be than giving praise and glory to our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, right? Come on. So good. The altar will be open, of course. Come and pray. Come and sing. If you pray to receive Christ, we'd love to talk to you and celebrate with you. Would you stand with us?